Hello and welcome to another Royal College of Psychiatrists podcast. My name is Howard Ryland. I'm the Associate Editor for the e-newsletter. Mm-hmm. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr Robert Fisher. Robert, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Great. Could you just start off by telling us a, a little bit about you? Um, okay, my my name is Robert Fisher, as you said. I'm living in London with my family. I've got two sons, a five and ten year old, and my wife, who's also a consultant psychiatrist like myself. And I work in East London since 2007 as a consultant psychiatrist. Um, I still uh, feel very privileged as I have retained in and outpatient responsibility, which is one of the main reasons why I left Germany to work in England. Great, thank you. And I understand that you're not just a consultant psychiatrist, but also a keen swimmer, and that recently you completed the feat of swimming across the English Mm. Channel. What inspired you to undertake this endeavour? First, thank you for inviting me, and I'm very surprised how much attention I get for swimming the channel, uh, much more than for completing my medical doctor's degree in neuroendocrinology, um, which is about cyroxine in different red brains, so, but this seems to be attracting a lot of attention. I always was a keen swimmer, always loved to swim outdoors. Um, before we moved from Berlin to to London, we, we had a look at um, t- Old Time Life um, picture magazine, which this, one of the most impressive uh, pictures was a serpentine swimmer jumping into the serpentine in spring. So I joined the Serpentine Swimming Club in 2009, um, because I always left outdoor swimming, and couldn't help to be inspired by all the other fellow swimmers who are preparing for long-distance swimming, which I've never done before. I always just swim for fun. And, and so people were preparing for Lake Windermere, for Lake Coniston, for swimming the North Channel from Scotland to Ireland, or um, as the channel, as the ultimate goal, as a long-distance swimmer. And so, cut a long story short, I thought about what, what should I do? I need to do one of these swims as well. And then I thought I need to do a relay first, maybe where you take turns. Um, which I thought mm, I'm not getting any younger so I might as well just do the channel straight away as the first long distance swim Fantastic and I imagine that swimming the channel is not something, even if you are a seasoned swimmer that you just decide to do one day what kind of specific Mm. preparation did you have to do for it? Again, I'm I'm very fortunate to be a member of the um, swimming club um, Serpentine, and there are lots of seasoned uh, channel swimmers there. Um, Nick Adams as the president of the Channel Swimming and Pilot Federation, and Kevin Murphy, who's the king of the channel, who swam it 34 times, so could draw on their expertise. You need, indeed, long preparation, starting talking to your family, because it needs a lot of time commitment, um, and obviously you, you have to swim a certain amount of miles per week or things like that. So it took me about one and a half years preparation altogether um, to book a boat, which is frequently booked out. The good slots are booked out for two, four years in advance. So we need to choose that. It's money involved, obviously. You need to pay some money. The main cost is the pilot, with £2,500 approximately. And you need to put the effort in, so the training. So um, um, 
at the end, so I started off with something around 40 kilometers per month, um, very, very easy, and then it ends up with somewhere above 100 kilometers per month. And you need to try to swim as much in the open water as possible and throughout the winter, so you get used to the cold. Great. And what was the actual experience of crossing the channel like? First, it's very exciting in the preparation because you don't book a day and then the day appears and you get it. Um, and actually, in my case, went okay, so I only waited two and a half weeks to get the final okay. So, and every day you have to prepare your crew, so have a crew ready that is willing to go at, in the middle of the night to, to Dover. You so you talk to your pilot every day if the weather conditions are fine and in the end of the day then after two and a half stop and go two and a half weeks stop and go um, I got to go ahead and I met at 2 a.m. in my flat in Camden with my friends and crew members you have to learn a lot of preparation you can go and get lists like where, how to get high carbohydrate drinks and things like that and um, then drove down to Dover. My wife was kindly enough to uh, drive me and kindly enough to agree to all this time commitment for one and a half years. Uh, so I'm very, very much grateful for her and for my children's commitment to that as well. Um, but they drove me there and then at 4 a.m. in the morning we boarded the ship, uh, a boat, um, said goodbye to my family and then uh, started greasing up the parts that are open to chefing. That's the main problem because your your movements are very repetitive. And for example, my colleague, Dr. Price, who kindly was feeding me from the boat, um, was also kind enough to calculate that I did about 50,000 strokes. And obviously that will lead to serious chefing under the armpits or in the necks or on the shoulders. And all these parts get greased so they don't get wounded. Started in pitch dark night and um, so you get you have to swim to the to the beach where you start. You have to you have to swim from beach to beach, and then the uh, pilot gives you a signal, either a horn or other signal that you're starting, and then the clock ticks. Um, I was very excited to start with, so I was almost sprinting from from the beach, which was called Shakespeare Beach, is very close to Dover, and sprinting about sixty six strokes per minute for for about an hour, and then settled in into regular. Um, pace of about 55 to 58 strokes per minute. The first four hours were beautiful, with like beautiful uh, red sky sunset and, and could enjoy this, I could take everything in. Um, there's very little communication to your crew possible because of the sound of the water and, and everything, so you can't really do any of that. But every half hour you stop for a quick drink, which takes about 10 seconds, and then you move on. And one of my crew members wanted to say something nice to me and, and told me then after four and a half hours that I was doing very good progress. That actually was making me think the first time and the whole time how far did I go and then I turned around and the problem is that Dover cliffs are very high and you keep on seeing them for almost the whole swim and as I get, uh, got a bit put off I thought no I'm not very far at all and so the next two and a half hours started thinking about how far I am really or not. Um, and then I got a serious dip because of the phys physical exhaustion after six and a half hours. And one of my teammates was coming into the water to swim along. And that picked me up again. So I had a very good swim from another seven to nine hours. It was very easy just swimming um, every half hour, um, getting a bit of 
um, high carbohydrate drinks, maybe occasionally banana or chocolate bar or things like that. And unfortunately then the wind turned because in the beginning I had very nice wind from the back, so pushing me a bit, and then the, turn, the wind turned around to um, 22 knots against me and the waves were going up to 2-3 meters, so up to almost 10 foot. So it was getting really, really tough. And after nine hours, I was really, really knackered. And but I got a pep talk from um, one of my observers who who, who um, also guided me on the other side of the boat. So I wasn't exposed to the, the waves anymore as bad. Um, so for the next two hours again, I felt fine, although the wind was really bad and the waves really bad. And then I had to swim back a bit because a container ship was coming too close. Um, so I had to swim back to Dover to let, uh, let that pass. That was quite funny. And, but all these distractions also help you to distract you from your own misery, which starts approximately after six, seven hours, then the pain really starts to be, be bad. But it doesn't get worse anymore. After seven hours, it stays the same. And at the very end of the swim, then you only start to see France. And when I was close enough, so I was leaving the boat, swimming to the shore, and then um, my crew started to wave frantically, and I thought they were waving me off to for the last bit. Um, and actually, they wanted me to come back to the boat because the wind and tide was so strong that the um, lobster pots were carried away from, from their uh, usual places and were about uh, to catch me, and so they were worried that I get caught away by the lobster pots. But luckily, I didn't get caught by lobster pots. I made it to the other side and was very elated when when I reached on the other side and, and was really happy. You don't stay long. You, I think the maximum you're allowed to stay is about 15 minutes. Otherwise, then, the, because it's made, made illegal by France to swim the channel about 20 years ago. And so you, but you, they're, they're, let's say, enduring the English eccentricity of, of channel swimming. So and say, look, you can't stay for 15 minutes, but then you have to bugger off again. And then, I, and because I made it, then I was very late and full of energy. So the swim from the shore back to the boat wasn't so difficult. Usually, you get a rubber dinghy trick, uh, trip, but because of the bad weather, they didn't manage to get petrol into the engine of the rubber dinghy. So I had to swim it myself. <laughs> Must have been quite a feeling to reach the other side. Now you've had the chance to mm. reflect on your experience. Mm. What lessons have you learned from it? Obviously, what I also learned is that you need to prepare what happens afterwards because I only prepared for the swim itself. I hadn't prepared for what happens afterwards. And I was really exhausted for two and a half weeks. All my energy was gone. Any small task I was doing was getting me at the edge physically and mentally. So I was much more prone to feel for someone who was sad. So I could feel much more sadness than before, but I also could feel happiness better than before. So that was really interesting. Um, I also learned, again, that if you plan something very thoroughly and that you can achieve your goals, I also could also confirm again that uh, against the stereotype that psychiatrists only drink coffee and sit around and all this, that they're able to do physical tasks as well, not only mental tasks. But I think the main thing is the, the experience of the highs and lows emotionally that I could feel more for my patients, for my family, for myself, that I felt much more alive myself, but also could other, feel other people's life better. Great. And finally, would you do it again and would you recommend it to other people? So 
what is really good about having achieved it is you don't have to do it again. Um, and, and many people did ask me if I would do it again. And my answer would be, I managed it once. I've, um, I don't have to do it again. I might do it again. But this year I'm not going to do it again because of the time commitment. I will do a charity swim, a relay swim against, uh, across the channel this year for Médecins Sans Frontières. And, and people are very welcome if they want to join me to email me on robertfisher at eastlondon.nhs.uk if you want to join in as doctors, because it will be done only by doctors for doctors abroad. Fantastic. Robert, thank you very mm -hmm. much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me.